You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Welcome everyone to this Unitarian meeting. Everyone is welcome, no matter what your background, sexuality, ethnicity, gender, and so on. Everyone's welcome, and we've been going since 1854. We meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. We respect their elders, past and present. Some notices for the week. for paid-up members uh, who have been members for six months, they will be able to attend and vote at a special general meeting after the service. There's no moving meditation session this week because it's public holiday tomorrow. For those interested, Shady Grove Cemetery and Bush Care sessions have recommenced. Tuesday, Wednesday mornings, contact the office for further details. Terrace Singers are rehearsing Thursdays 4pm. New members welcome. The Words of Spirit session, 6pm this Wednesday. That is a lovely hour of contemplation of special words, usually from our own breviary, which is compiled from sayings favoured by members of the congregation in past years. I personally can't make it on Wednesday, but... I'm sure there'll be a group which sustains itself. And the only other thing I wanted to highlight, that there is still plenty of COVID around. Sorry to be grim, but uh, and I don't want to discourage interaction between people, but uh, do bear that in mind and get a, a serving of gloop on your way out from the container in the foyer. It is something we still need to be mindful of. We, we have had a couple of members of the congregation catch it in recent weeks. So let's be... And they're not here. So let's be careful. And of course you can make an offering by cash or tap and pay on the way out to help keep us going if you wish. Now, a prelude. Thank you, Margaret. Pavan, Francis Pollon.
We come together around this flame as a community. And as the flame burns, we each come to this place at this time with our passions, projects and follies. As the flame burns in our lives, we experience successes, failures, excitement and challenges. May we also experience peace when the flame goes out. Let's take a moment to dwell on what we've heard and if you will, join with me in prayer. But let us contemplate our experiences of the world. We must grapple with ill health and accidents. In some ways our physical bodies are resilient and in other ways they are frail. We pray for the healing of all the people we care for. We pray that we may remain strong and generous and courageous in the face of sadness. We also experience joy. There's so much hope when we see the younger generation come forth, children and young adults with their lives ahead of them, full of potential. Let nothing stand in their way. We pray for their success, their self-realisation and their wholeness. We pray that we all continue to care for each other and ourselves. When in doubt, breathe deeply and maintain good intentions. Now, I'll call upon Aran to read to us today a challenge from the Buddha. Buddha said, the world is on fire. And are you laughing? You are deep in the dark. Will you not ask for light? For behold your body, a painted puppet, a toy, jointed and sick and full of false imaginings, a shadow that shifts and fades. How frail it is, frail and pestilent, it sickens, festers and dies. Like every living thing, in the end, it sickens and dies. Behold these whitened bones, the hollow shells and husks of a dying summer, and are you laughing? Now we have a hymn. So uh, Margaret will play through once and the words will be up on the screen. Thanks, Margaret.
Thank you. I liked the delicious irony that the words of this beautiful hymn have a compatibility with Buddhist teaching. So now I turn to the essential teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths. So about 2,600 years ago, there was a prince who lived in a palace, had everything he could possibly wish for. It came as a dreadful shock to him one day to realise that suffering, illness and death are an inevitable part of our existence on earth. There was no shortage of Hindu gods to whom he could have appealed to cope with the shocking revelation of suffering outside his comfortable palace walls. However, he felt compelled to set forth into the world on a courageous individual exploration to confront and comprehend the suffering he observed. He left his family, shaved off his hair and beard, and put on the brown robes of a monk. He initially studied and practiced meditation, but that only took him so far. For years, he then practiced asceticism, eating the minimum amount of food to sustain life. But the thoughts of suffering and the natural desire to avoid suffering continued. He resumed a healthier, moderate diet and focused on his powers of concentration. All the while, he continued with the practice of meditation. In his quest to be free from suffering, the man who became known as the Buddha, which means the enlightened one, came to fully realize four fundamental truths. One, there is suffering in the world. Two, the cause of suffering can be determined. Three, it is possible to be freed from the chain of causation which leads to suffering. Four, the way to be freed from suffering is by following the Eightfold Path. Accepting these premises and following the path is what, in a word, we would call Buddhism. Before expanding on these four conclusions reached by Buddha, usually called the Four Noble Truths, it's worth noting the questions which Buddha deliberately set aside. He considered that they were not essential to the central question of human suffering. He did not dwell on the questions of whether the universe is finite or infinite, eternal or not. He did not define what a human being is or whether we have a self. What mattered essentially was the sensations and desires and then how the mind responded to these phenomena. Let's go back to the first noble truth. I have an image there of the Buddha observing suffering for possibly the first time in his life. The first noble truth, there is suffering. The basis for this conclusion is that there are what Buddha called kandas in Pali, which was the language he spoke. It literally means a heap of things in the world, but is often translated as aggregates. Buddha observed in the world there are these five aggregates or experiences, one could say. A sense of form, the way we experience matter. A feeling, as in emotion or craving. Perception, observing our desires and also observing that in the world which might satisfy our desires. Fourthly, fabrication or calculation, 
as our mind generates tactics to satisfy the desires which have been identified, thinking about how to get what we want and how to consume it. And fifthly, the consciousness that we do these things. The problem is not in itself that these things occur, but rather that we cling to these experiences. How do we do this? Buddha says it occurs in four ways. Sensuality, habits, dogmatic opinions and ideology, and construction of identity. These are the forms of clinging to experience. At this point, it's worth noting that Buddha accepted the prevailing view in his society that reincarnation was a fact. Samsara literally refers to the world, but is commonly used in the sense of a being's experience repeatedly coming in and going out of this world through a chain of lives. The problem of suffering, which Buddha contemplated, was not confined to a single life, but was a problem which had to be faced through countless lives until one is liberated from the causes of reincarnation. Thinking of the second noble truth, the question arises about the cause of human attachment to these experiences. The Buddha recognised three kinds of desires. Desires of sensuality are easy for us to understand, seeking physical comfort and pleasure and so on. Secondly, Buddha recognised the desire to become something, to aspire to a particular identity. It could even be a desire to become a good Buddhist or a good Unitarian. Thirdly, Buddha recognised a desire to not become something. The desire to avoid becoming a particular type of person had just as much impact on the mind's attachment to the world as the other two kinds of desire. In this world where we cannot magically fulfil our desires or hold on to anything permanently, these various types of desire must eventually lead to a sense of loss or suffering of some kind. That leads to the third noble truth, which is a straightforward statement. Having identified the problem, the third noble truth states that there is a solution to the problem. It is possible to be freed from all sense of loss and suffering. The point at which one is free from all sense of craving and suffering is what Buddha called nirvana. In fact, nirvana was a metaphor in the language of the day. It commonly referred to the extinguishing of a fire. It was thought by Buddha's contemporaries that there was an igneous quality which existed in itself pervading the environment like oxygen. When it found something combustible, this inherent igneous quality would attach itself to the combustible matter and cling to it until it had been burnt up. Then the igneous quality would become latent again until it attached itself to some other combustible matter. So you can see why Buddha used the extinction of the flame as a metaphor. They reached a point where there was nothing left to which the flame might cling. It didn't mean that the igneous quality ceased to exist, it's just that what it was clinging to was no longer there. Now you might be thinking, I don't want to get to the point of extinguishing my desires. I enjoy so much of this world. 
the good food, pleasant weather, companionship. That's fine. But for how long do these things last? As the preacher says in the biblical text, Ecclesiastes, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now some music as we contemplate.
At this point, I go off on a tangent and note that the Buddhist conception of the mind is really at odds with Carl Jung's understanding of the human psyche. At the risk of oversimplifying, Jung conceived of the self embodied in each person with an ego that mediated between the self and the world. Buddhism did not concern itself with the self in that sense. I suspect Buddha would see Jung's conception of the ego as an aggregate of desires which are ultimately to be transcended. Some parallels can be drawn, however. Jung conceived of a state of complete self-realization whereby a person is completely at peace with the world as they simply act as themselves and seek to be nothing more. In the same way, the enlightened Buddhist may carry out duties in life without attachment and without an impulse to be anything more or less. In his work Mysterium Conjunctionis, Jung usefully observed about Buddhism, quote, the extremely radical reformation of Hinduism by the Buddha assimilated the traditional spirituality of India in its entirety and did not thrust a ruthless novelty upon the world. It neither denied nor ignored the Hindu pantheon swarming with millions of gods, but boldly introduced the human, who before that had not been represented at all. And so we come to the fourth noble truth, the way that leads to nirvana, the eightfold path. The eightfold path means having the right view or perspective, the right intention or resolve, the right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I briefly explain these eight aspects. Having the right perspective means viewing experience in terms of the noble truths. They become the framework for viewing the world. You might think, well, of course I see the world as it is. I'm very objective. Consider, though, what happens when we see an old movie on TV. They used to call them moving pictures. We see the flow of movement as the story goes along, but actually it is based on a series of individual frames. They are presented in such quick succession that our brain strings them together to make the story. The point is that the mind often plays tricks on us, and we usually don't give it a second thought. The right intention, or one could say the right resolution, represents a commitment to refrain from indulgence, whether it be thoughts of sensuality or thoughts of ill will toward others. Without having a correct framework and a commitment to act properly, it's hard to get the rest right. Right speech is fairly obvious. It reminds me of the story of the novice nun who went to her abbess in the monastery to ask about the use of technology. She asked, is it acceptable to use email for communication? The abbess replied, yes, but only if you send the email without attachment. Now, to state the obvious, communicating rightly means refraining from lies, rumours, and speaking harshly without just cause. 
It also means refraining from idle chatter. And by the way, you're all welcome to stay for tea, coffee and idle chatter after the service this morning. (laughs) Acting rightly is pretty straightforward. As a minimum, try not to kill anyone or or steal anything. And sorry if this disappoints anyone here, but fornication is also a no-no. Right livelihood is pretty easy to understand. It is accepted that one needs to work for oneself and one's family, but one should refrain from dishonest or harmful vocations. Being a Unitarian minister, probably okay. Uh, Being a drug dealer, probably not okay. Uh, Being a politician, you may think is borderline. (laughs) But in truth, there's nothing inherently wrong with the role although one rotten potato can make the whole bag smell bad, as they say. Right effort follows on from having the right commitment. Once embarking on the path, it means consistently checking oneself and bringing oneself back to good communication and action. To succeed on the spiritual path, constant effort is required. I refer to mindfulness before coming to the last of the eight aspects. Mindfulness ties in well with right effort. It means returning and returning again to the point where we observe our reaction to the world in terms of our thoughts and feelings, for example. If we are mindful before, after and even during our communication with others, we are more likely to encourage and give love and less likely to disrespect the other person and cause ill-feeling. Finally, right concentration is easiest to explain in terms of the effect of fruitful meditation practice. Qualities such as self-composure, equanimity, alertness and perspective can be gained from meditation practice. The challenge is to retain these qualities throughout everyday life. The Eightfold Path has been called the Triple Training because the first two aspects can be summed up as discernment, right view, right intention. The next three aspects can be summed up as virtue, right speech, action and livelihood. And the last three aspects can be summed up under the heading concentration, effort, mindfulness, concentration. I observe that Buddhism is quite attractive to many people in the Western world, particularly those with an intellectual predisposition. If people cannot bring themselves to find faith in the transcendent, Buddhism offers a comprehensive and logical philosophy which offers a clear pathway to wisdom. Like most pathways to spiritual progress, The basic concepts can be easy to grasp, but then comes the hard part. Daily practice and discipline are required. Possibly the most common trap for aspiring Buddhists, especially those of intellectual disposition, is the assumption that one must stop being emotional. Some people will suppress their emotions and limit their relationships, apparently for the sake of being a good Buddhist. With respect, I think they may be missing the point. Following the Eightfold Path may lead to the point of stillness called Nirvana, but along the way we are functioning human beings with lives to lead. There is a useful term in Sanskrit, 
Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A in English, which I would translate as duties of life. If we do not fulfil such duties, we create bad karma, inducing reactions which we must then negotiate, causing difficulties which are bound to impede spiritual progress. Karma is a topic for another day. Whatever progress we make on the spiritual path, there are still the duties of life which we must fulfil. We have work, we have people to care for, we must eat and exercise and so on. It is in our daily life, not in a remote monastery, that we must care for ourselves, care for each other and follow the path. When in doubt, breathe deeply and maintain good intentions. Brothers and sisters, whatever your religion or philosophy, hold to it, practice it daily, maintain your discipline in speech and action as we continue to care for each other and ourselves. Now a final piece of music, our postlude Carillon by Francis Poulon.
hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.